90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, doing pretty good. Temperatures are back down into the burning hot instead of, you know, hellish hot temperature range. So it's good out here. So you're getting back out into the field. Uh, yeah, it's our it's geophysics week, your favorite week of field camp. So once again, I'm surrounded by batteries. I've already been to the battery Yay, store. Yeah, carrying twice. car batteries. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they're super excited about those car batteries. Let me tell you. <laughs> uh, I'm sure there's nothing like doing geology except doing geology while carrying car batteries. <laughs> exactly. We're doing some cool uh, anisotropy experiments, so shaking it up a little bit, and um, it's been a fun week. Almost over. Almost time to go home. Oh, so you're, you're doing some uh, some seismic lines then? Yep, yep, of course. Um, we've got a whole bunch of cool seismic equipment, and obviously everyone wants to um, use the hammer, hit this big steel plate, and get all their aggressions out since it's the last week of camp. Yeah. Well, and I'm actually going to be traveling again uh, starting <laughs> the day that this show airs. So oh. you'll come home, and I'm going to hit the road for a month. Uh, that always happens, I feel like. <laughs> Yeah. So like like usual, I will be going down uh, to Austin for the Scientific Python Conference, among many other stops along the way, and actually know that there's going to be several of our listeners there. So I think it would be a lot of fun to try to get uh, listeners and you know some of the folks from Undersampled, and uh, we'll all grab a, a beverage and some barbecue. Uh, that sounds awesome. Maybe Maybe I'll pop down there just for that. You know, the barbecue is worth it. Uh, I, I am yes. already working on the list of places to go. Oh, yeah. I bet you're really uh, lacking up there in Pennsylvania. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but this isn't a show about barbecue. No. Uh, <laughs> but so we actually have been doing, uh, we announced this several weeks ago, uh, a book club with the Orbital Mechanics. And we just had our first meeting Monday. And I thought it would be worthwhile sharing how that went. Um, exactly. We all connected on Discord, and I thought it was really neat. We read the first two chapters of this book, Ignition, uh, that we've already talked about, uh, by John Clark. And although it's about rocket fuel, and I didn't think I would be super excited, it's actually quite well written, and it's a hysterical book, and a cool account of sort of science from, you know, the 30s, 40s, 50s on, and I'm having a great time. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And this is kind of, you know, seat of the pants science of we're taking these different chemicals that we have and we're dropping them into red fuming nitric acid, which just sounds awful. And we're going to see what happens. And it's some pretty harrowing tales of laboratory experiments, among other things. And yeah, there's actually quite a lot of um, missing appendages and deaths that happened because of this, too, because this really was seat of the pants chemistry yeah and we're only you know 20 something pages into the book and it's a really easy read so you can definitely join us uh we're talking about the book monday at uh, nine eastern that would be six pacific uh, every monday for the next i believe six weeks is what we have in the schedule it's a, a pretty light reading load so we did chapters one and two last week and we're reading chapters three and four this week uh, so it's really worth uh, reading and checking out, and you get to, to talk to all of us and the Orbital Mechanics folks. Uh, 
Just go to theorbitalmechanics.com slash book club for the link to get in the chat room with us. Uh, so speaking of favorite books, um, that kind of sort of leads us into our topic for this week. And I wanted to talk about my favorite rock formation. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess, you know, rock formations are sort of sort of books. As a geologist, you read them, right? <laughs> that is exactly right. Um, that's sort of one of my favorite things to ask people in general is, like, what's your favorite author? Because I feel like it tells me a lot instantly about that person. And so I really like to ask fellow, (laughs) it's true, I really like to ask fellow geologists what their favorite formations are. Um, So it either tells you about like where their geologic interests lie, or sort of, you know, where they like to vacation, maybe, (laughs) where they like to hang out in the world and do their research. So um, I thought we'd start that out. I've asked a lot of people that recently, and I thought it'd be kind of cool to talk about. Yeah, and... I mean, I guess for for lab people, we still have our favorite formation from having experience in the field at some point. Uh, But I will say it's been a number of years since I've actually laid hands on, you know, an outcrop and tried to think about it. Uh, So I'm very curious to hear, especially now that you're in the field, uh, what your favorite formation is. Oh, you're killing me, John. You're killing me. have to get you out on one of these uh next research uh, outings we have um well so obviously every geologist probably has a lot of favorite formations um but one that i keep coming back to since i work here in um south central colorado all the time is the fountain formation and a lot of people have probably heard of this well maybe not heard of it but definitely have seen this formation if you've ever been through say colorado springs the big red rocks out there that's all called the fountain formation Right. And this is actually a, I mean, it's found around where you are right now. Right. Exactly. Um, And this formation is found really close to these big major reverse faults that are sort of the eastern boundary of the current day Rocky Mountains. And it's neat because the fountain's origins are actually related to mountains, but not these actual Rocky Mountains. We're going to get back to that, though. Um, First, we need to paint a picture, so to speak, of what the fountain looks like. Do you remember dealing with the fountain when you were out here? Uh, very vaguely, but I get the feeling that you're going to go all John McPhee on me here and uh, wax into this this wonderful description of in the beginning in you know 295 MA. Oh, so that's exactly right. <laughs> that's exactly where I'm going with this. Uh, so the fountain is Pennsylvanian um, in age about 295 million years ago. And it's this really, really deep red, brick red color, um, arcosic sandstone. So that means it's got a lot of feldspar and a lot of quartz. That's why we call it an arcos. And as we said, this is actually a pretty famous formation. Because if you've ever been to a concert at Red Rocks in Denver, that's the fountain formation. That's the amphitheater. Those are those huge red rocks that look super cool that give them their name. Um, It also forms the... And that's a really spectacular place to go as well. Just... (laughs) If you're in the area, it's a wonderful place, and they have a 5K, which I ran a number of years ago, uh, that oh. would probably cause me bodily injury now. Uh, <laughs> but it was a lot of fun, and you got to run past a lot of geology, too. Uh, yeah, it's true. Even if you're not going for a concert, it's super cool to go into the amphitheater. Um, it's really neat. Um, it's also, if you go into Boulder, Colorado, the, the big iconic flat irons there in Boulder, those sort of pointy, triangular-shaped rocks that look like flat irons. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Those are all, the, you know, the fountains right there. Um, and the Garden of the Gods in Colorado Springs, another place that a lot of people go to, 
you know, if you're a tourist or if you live in Colorado Springs, locals are out there all the time. Um, the fountain is right. all over that. So it's kind of an interesting formation just because it gets a lot of exposure. A little geology pun there. <laughs> and it's, <laughs> its origins here, I go John McPhee, are super awesome. So before we get into the origin story, we should probably describe the rock in a little bit more detail since, well, this, this is radio. <laughs> That's true. Um, so I think you've got by now, it's red. <laughs> and it's right. a sand. And one of the most important properties of a sandstone, right, is what size are the chunks that make it up. Right, exactly. And this is what's so cool about the fountain because there's a whole range of millimeter size to meters across chunks or what we would call clast when we're talking about a clastic rock. So how would you categorize that? I mean, would you categorize it by what the particular part of the formation that you're in is? Because millimeters to meters is a huge range of scales. It really is. And a lot of the fountain, um, the difference in sort of how it looks over this large area is sort of a clue as to how unique the environment was that it formed in. But so we'd call it an arcos just because all those clasts are mostly feldspar with a lot of quartz. And then in some places, you're going to start calling it a conglomerate. So it's got really large class supported by a tiny sort of matrix. And these are the millimeters um, is the matrix. And then big class, like some as large as people. And that's a lot of rock to move. Yeah, and it takes a lot of energy to move such a big chunk of rock, which tells you something about where it was deposited. Exactly. So... I'm really into process sedimentology. I really like sort of the story behind how these sedimentary rocks form. And that's, besides looking awesome, like the fountain is very spectacular in outcrop. Um, the story behind it is super cool. And these huge chunks, just like John just said, you have to have a really high energy environment to move those. And I said in the beginning, you know, they're associated with these faults that are along the current day Rocky Mountains, but the fountain actually formed from the ancestral Rocky Mountains. Which is also often referred to as the arm. Right. We'll probably shorten that down to the arm. So if you don't know, the Rocky Mountains that are in place now are not the first Rocky Mountains that were there. Hence, ancestral Rocky Mountains. <laughs> so back in the Pennsylvanian, you know, we had a big uplift and a big, um, maybe even bigger than today. We're actually still not sure how high these ancestral Rocky Mountains are. So we have this big mountain range, but you have a big mountain range. And over time, you have to erode that mountain. That's what happens. <laughs> it's the rock cycle and everything else. So that the fountain formation is the erosional remnants of these ancestral Rockies. And those remnants are the fountain. Right. It's unbelievable to me. That's so cool because in the fountain, the fountain ranges in thickness. Um, it's up to 5,000 feet thick in the vicinity of Red Rocks. And that is a huge formation. It's almost a mile thick. That's a mile of rock that you had to shed off of these ancestral Rockies. And that's just really cool. But what's that environment? What does that look like? Well, probably we get on current mountains, you get alluvial fans, right? These are these V-shaped things that you see, and you can tell that it's like pieces of the mountain eroding. Does that, you know what I'm right. talking about, right? Um, and so we see these like out in Death Valley, there's really famous alluvial fans, and how you get that is water. So this is just 
the same processes that happen today. You've got storms and you rain down on these mountains, you form a really big braided stream. And so by braided stream, I mean there's a lot of little rivulets running around. And these are really high energy environments. And that's where you get these huge chunks. That's why some parts of the fountain don't have a lot of really big glass. It's more of a sandstone because it was just in this channel that was there. Then you get a big flood. Something happens like that. You erode a whole bunch of really bigger chunks of rock. You get these conglomerates laid down and so on and so on for up to 5,000 feet thick. Yeah, so things like floods, things like the slope, uh, the local slope, uh, which would be variable, uh, things like what kind of mass wasting events were going on there, uh, all of these things would have made a big difference. Right, so that's, a, that's actually a really important point because we say it's 5,000 feet thick in the vicinity of Red Rocks, um, but it varies along the entire front range. So the front range is, you know, the mountain range that's right here um, north of Canyon City, right there in Colorado Springs today. And, you know, down here we have, oh, 1,200 feet. And then these modern-day Rockies, when they started coming up um, during the Laramide orogeny, which was mm, 100 and, no, 200 years later, 200 million years later. <laughs> so <laughs> 200 million years later, the Rockies come up, and they've started to sort of cut up the fountain. So we have the fountain thickness ranges from, like, 20 feet to 1,200 feet in this area. And then as you move towards north, towards Red Rocks and Denver, up to about 5,000 feet. Um, and it's really neat because you can see, John just alluded to this, uh, this thing that we would call paleotopography. You know, you got mountains in some places, no mountains in the others. So where you've got a big mountain that you're eroding, you're going to deposit a huge package of this fountain formation as opposed to if you're, say, in between them or somewhere where you're not as close to that ancestral rocky mountain front, you're not going to get a lot of fountain deposited. And this is something that sedimentologists do. You can look at the thicknesses of this and sort of try to work back out how big the uh, ancestral Rocky Mountains were. Yeah, yeah. And looking at things like thicknesses of units is one place where seismic is a really good tool. Right, it really is. Um, a lot of what we know about these faults out here are also sort of from, you know, geophysical investigations, right? And one thing we didn't talk about is that the fountain is generally dipping at a really steep angle. And when you're in Red Rocks, in the amphitheater there, you can see this, right? Yeah, so this is kind of like, you know, Garden of the Gods, too, really, where you're looking at the the bedding planes or how the sediment settled and then was formed into rock is tilted in some places almost vertically. Right. Uh, yes, especially Garden of the Gods. It is at 90 degrees there. Um, so the fountain tends to form these big high angle ridges as well that are along these large reverse faults um, for the current Rocky Mountains. But these kind of faults probably existed during the time period that the arms were also around. Um, so it's really neat. There's a lot of, besides the fountain being really interesting in terms of process sedimentology, there's actually a lot of structural geology and um, sort of geophysical investigation that goes on right here along the current Rocky Mountain front um, to understand sort of what's happened since these things have been deposited. And just the fountain is just one of many really cool formations out here that sort of tell that story of the ancestral Rocky Mountains. Yes, and there's a lot of other really cool geologic stories that we can tell about that area, about all kinds of collisions, and maybe Baja BC running up the coast, and all kinds of funny things that happen to form the topography that's there or was there. 
at the time. Right. Exactly. Um, I just sort of wanted, I, I know a lot of people probably, I mean, if we have any listeners that are from this area, you drive by this formation all the time. I mean, it's, it's deep red color it makes you look at it just because you're like, Oh, that's a, that's a pretty rock, but it has, you know, a bigger story. And I just, I love the fountain because of those processes that are involved in its deposition. Like, we just mentioned earlier, once you visit a place like Death Valley and you see these huge alluvial fans that are being deposited there, I, they're just massive. You, you can drive around one and it takes you, you know, 30 minutes to drive around it. Um, and you can start to envision this environment that the fountain was formed in. So these large pieces of the ancestral Rocky Mountains were broken down due to weathering and they were transported down this mountain in sometimes really big flood events. Like you said earlier, John, these big mass wasting events maybe. And these braided streams just carry these pebbles, cobbles, boulders, little bitty sand-sized particles. And you can see this cross-bedding in the fountain, those big conglomerates. And you just can imagine that the ancestral Rockies, they were pretty darn big. Yes, <laughs> and you really do get to kind of get that reconstructed uh, John McPhee view of what was this like 295 million years ago. Right. I mean, that's the... If you haven't read John McPhee, any one of his books is just amazing. And you should absolutely do that because it just makes you look back in time and imagine what it looked like then. And it's really, it's, it's very humbling and it's just the cool thing about geology. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I think that intentionally or not, the fun paper that we've got <laughs> for this week can be very directly related to the fountain formation. <laughs> this was not intentional at all, but it's hilarious now that I think about it. <laughs> so there's one thing that uh, happens in the fountain formation that you mentioned, which is concerts at Red Rocks. And there's something that happens a lot at concerts, especially <laughs> metal concerts. And that's headbanging. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, so this week's paper... <laughs> <laughs> did you like that transition I that did. was not even planned it wasn't that was the most beautiful segue ever um, <laughs> so this week's paper is head and neck injury risks and in heavy metal headbangers stuck between rock and a hard base <laughs> by Patton et al <laughs> oh my goodness <laughs> or Patton and Macintosh, i suppose just two authors yep. here yep. Uh, from the school of risk and safety sciences University of New South Wales, Sydney, Australia. <laughs> so this was in the uh, British Medical Journal um, in 2008. And that is so great. I can't believe that was unintentional, but great. Um, <laughs> so this very short paper, and it's totally well worth the read, is looking at headbangers, essentially. Um, I like to imagine maybe one of these guys has a kid that's into heavy metal music or something like that. And they're trying to investigate you know, what are the real risks of headbanging? Like, is this severe trauma? Is it just giving you a headache? Is this a real thing that we should be worried about? And there are several things I love about this paper, <laughs> uh, including the sense of humor. But oh, yes. the first sentence of the introduction says, young people at heavy metal concerts often report being dazed and confused. <laughs> Possible symptoms of mild traumatic brain injury. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's wonderful. Um, this is full of great nuggets like this. Um, <laughs> yes, and it's uh, 
I also, have you ever seen an abstract broken up like this in a paper? I have not. I thought that was really interesting. I mean, it's only four pages long, but this abstract has the objective, design, participants, outcomes, results, and conclusions all laid out for you. Yeah, they're called out in bold. I, I mm-hmm. wish more journals would adopt this because it would be a lot easier to quickly skim and see if this is an article you want to read or not. I know. I absolutely agree. And this one would have caught my caught my eye either way, though, just because of that first introductory, <laughs> introductory sentence. <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> oh, it's so great. So they talk, they talk in clinical detail about all this great metal that I grew up with. <laughs> and so it's really funny. Um and so they talk about, you know, all these kids headbang at these concerts and, you know, it looks really violent, but is it truly doing you damage? Um, so it's great because <laughs> they say that, and this is in the introduction as well, though exposure to headbanging is enormous, opportunities are present to control this risk. For example, encouraging bands such as ACDC to play songs like Moon River as a substitute for Highway to Hell. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like that sentence a lot as well. <laughs> um, and also suggest donning personal protective equipment if you're going Labeling to Labeling of music packaging with anti-headbanging warnings. Exactly. Oh, um, it's this is really great. Um, so they go through sort of a history of headbanging, and they call out some of my idols. Wayne's World <laughs> is one of them. Beavis and Butthead. We'll talk about that here when we come come to the conclusions um but they talk about some of the and i didn't really even know this so jason newstead um who is in metallica of course is known for his circular swinging style head banging and he actually gave physical damage as one of his reasons for leaving metallica in 2001 um i thought that was really interesting and it turns out there's also been a stroke and traumatic aneurysm both uh attributed to head banging yes um, this is, I, I did not know that at all. Um, so what they're trying to do is like quantify, can you really get hurt from this? And so they actually identify the different styles of headbanging, <laughs> um, because there's a bunch of different ways you can do this, right? And so either you can, um, you know, roll your head around in a circle, you can jam your head up and down, and they took into account all of these just basically from attending concerts. <laughs> uh, yes, I was wondering, you know, how does that look on the, uh, how do you submit a reimbursement form exactly. for a Motorhead concert ticket? Exactly. <laughs> Ozzy Osbourne, White Stank. But they came to the conclusion after going to, oh, they list, you know, 10 of them in here, um, that the up-down style is the most um, most often employed headbanging style, which I, probably has to do with the space allotted in a tiny concert seat, but anyway. And they took this information and they constructed a theoretical headbanging model, assuming the angular displacement of the head during head oscillation and pitch follows a sinusoidal motion, I thought that was really interesting. Um, along this joint, T1, C7 joint axis, which I don't know which joint that is. Um, and then they... they You're took, not that kind of doctor. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so <laughs> I thought that was really neat, the sinusoidal motion thing. Um, and then they yeah. did a lot of calculations based on how much you're flexing your neck, because that seemed to be one of the main things that could really hurt you. 
And apparently there are criterion for this. There's a head injury criterion and neck injury criterion, and they list the equations for them as well. So this is something that people have looked at, probably not with relation to headbanging, though, yes. but with relation to hyper uh, extension of the neck and what kind of uh, damage can be caused by that. Exactly. Um, so how fast do you headbang, and does that matter? And this was really cool, I thought, too. Um, so they took a focus group of 10 musicians from local bands, and they took their favorite headbanging songs. They played each song for these musicians. And it says members of the focus group were asked to tap out the beat of the song for one minute so they could calculate the average tempo of each song. And so they did this instead of the actual, like, looking at the sheet music and figuring out the tempo because they figured that that sort of tempo would reflect the headbanger's potential actions when exposed to this music. Well, and like any good scientist, they had a control song, <laughs> which was I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston. <laughs> oh, I thought that was pretty good, too. <laughs> um, I, I can just see these headbangers sitting there tapping out the rhythm to I Will Always Love You. <laughs> oh, it's super good. This is almost as much as chewing up goat meat and then spitting it back out. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, so they came up with this, these plots are really good too. You can easily see that some of this stuff could be really bad for you. Um, but they came up and they said that the songs that, the, that got picked at an average tempo of 146 beats per minute. And at that tempo, they, their model predicts that headbanging could cause headaches and dizziness, the dazed and confused part. Um, and especially if your range of movement of your head and neck is greater than 75 degrees. But the most interesting thing about all of this, I thought, was that the faster the song was, you generally moved your head less because you had to keep up with a higher beat. So the faster the songs actually lowered your potential to injure yourself, even though if you had been able to keep the same range of movement by increasing the speed, you would have increased your injury potential. Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I didn't really see that coming either. Um, so that was pretty interesting. <laughs> and really, I mean... I, I guess that they look at several songs and say, well, you know, this song would probably not, uh, because your your neck range of motion is going to be you know less than forty five degrees or so because it's one hundred and thirty beats a minute, say, uh, or faster. And some of these the the criteria they have marked on this chart for the head injury criteria, the uh, level one is headache or dizziness, level two is unconscious for less than an hour, and level three is unconscious for one to six hours. That's unbelievable. That's crazy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but they didn't stop there. They sure didn't. <laughs> so since they just did this theoretical model and they went and just observed people, but they haven't done actually any um, testing of this theoretical model, but they, they did do some testing because they watched Beavis and Butthead. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And uh, they did they did this for Wayne's World as well. Yes. But Beavis and Butthead turns out uh, they are they, well. They said that let's see, Beavis would be fine because he had motion of forty five degrees or so. Mm -hmm. uh, but Butthead had a motion of about seventy five degrees, which could cause injury. But I have this sentence highlighted as well. <laughs> Me too. It is well understood, however, that cartoon characters are able to tolerate greater than normal impacts without injury. <laughs> the only disappointing thing is that there isn't a citation for that. <laughs> I just wanted like, <laughs> yes. like Wiley e. Coyote. 
and a date range. <laughs> oh, that was great. So they did the same thing for Wayne and Garth and um, also said that they did not, um, you know, exceed these head or neck injury criteria, but the characters in the backseat of the car demonstrated a noticeably larger range of motion and might be at risk for head or neck injury. <laughs> Yeah, so <laughs> there you go. A scientific analysis of the dangers of headbanging, which you could do at Red Rocks while you're exploring the fountain. Exactly. That was a that was a full circle. Excellent. <laughs> I think that is the the definition of a wrap. So <laughs> if you have any feedback you would like to send us and we've also we've received a couple more fun papers this week and we have some exciting uh maybe a little contest that's going to be coming up soon so stay tuned for that Mm -hmm. uh fun things coming up but keep the feedback coming this is yeah i would say the longest string of feedback we've ever had it's wonderful (laughs) uh we'd love to hear from you shannon how can they get a hold of us uh well you can email us show at don'tpanicgeocast.com uh, John is on Twitter at geo underscore Lehman. I am at Shannon Doolin. And together we are at Don't Panic Geo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or